Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's the Crash MotoGP podcast post-Austria, the second of the doubleheaders around the Red Bull ring. And oh my, MotoGP really doesn't do things by halves, does it? Forget the fantastic track action for a second, which saw Brad Binder take a surprise win for KTM in changeable conditions. We had even more strange news, breaking news that was the talk of the town even before the weekend started. We'll try and cover it all for you here. Uh, and to digest it all with me, of course, is Keith Ewan and Pete McLaren. My name is Harry Benjamin. Now, uh, I know there is so much to cover with the race, uh, guys, but let's just rewind a few days before, as in the build-up to the weekend, Yamaha announced that Maverick Vinales was to be suspended for this round and would not be racing his bike in Austria. The reason it was revealed was because in the last few laps of the previous round at the Red Bull Ring, the Styrian Grand Prix, after a fairly frustrating race, he was basically caught trying to blow up his engine, essentially. First of all, Keith, we should say he has apologised quite emotionally to Yamaha, but it's not really on, is it, for a rider to be doing that kind of thing? I mean, how can he even come back from that? Well, he can come back from it. It depends whether Yamaha factory, and they're all on holiday, remember, in Japan at this time of the year. So the actual factory, it was the Yamaha Europe, I think, that took the uh, the impetus in the first place to try and ban him from this particular weekend. I mean, he's in big trouble, isn't he? In more ways than one. I mean, it, this this is not just frustration, although that's what he put it down to in his, his uh, little press conference that he had. And he is obviously very sorry for his actions. And, and He's a good lad. You've got to remember that Maverick Vinales is actually an all right guy. There's nothing wrong with Maverick Vinales. It's just that this last year or so has built up on him and it just seems to get ahead of him. He just, you know, we mentioned mental health so many times nowadays, you know, and truly there has always been mental health issues in a paddock, always. Never quite to the fore, never quite considered as much as it is now. Um, And he definitely needs a break. There is something not quite right there. I mean, what came out was obviously, if you've seen the clips, everyone at home, you know, he held the thing on the on the rev limiter. Now, great fun on a road bike, of course, where you can just sit there with it popping and banging on the rev limiter and the old ECU saves the motor from exploding. But on a racing bike, there's a slightly finer intolerance. Um, sitting there with it on the, on the rev limiter and then coming down pit lane and revving it to the rev limiter. It was an inappropriate use of the motorcycle, I think, was something along the lines of what was said. Um, and it couldn't get much more inappropriate than that. Uh, it has a safety issue, massive, not just to him, obviously, but if the thing had let go in a part of the track that, you know, is quick and someone had come flying through a whole pool of oil that the thing had, when it had thrown its lunch up um, and, and skidded off at a place like the Red Bull Ring, it could have been 
devastating. I mean, it's disrespectful to to himself, to to his team, to the fans, to other riders, to the factory he rides for. I mean, it couldn't get a bigger pile of poo that he's wandering around in at the moment. It really is an awful situation. Now, apology, will that hack it? I have a feeling it won't. Um, he's nowhere in the championship. It's not like they're going to lose a championship by by uh, extending that ban, particularly. Um, we've obviously got a situation when we get to Silverstone where it looks like Jake Dixon's going to be riding the Patronus bike. Cal Crutchlow's going to be riding uh, the factory bike that is at the moment vacant. Um, that's a possibility. And of course, it makes sense. Two British riders at the British Grand Prix. It's the final round in Britain that Valentino Rossi will be a MotoGP rider. Expect big, big ticket sales. People trying to climb over fences or under them, whatever it might be. But Silverstone is going to be rammed this year just because it looks like we're going to have two two British guys riding in MotoGP. Valentino's last ever race. I mean, Peter, it couldn't be a bigger thing. I bet you're wishing you weren't stuck in Thailand. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we... We saw from this weekend just, um, you know, the, the big fans back in the grandstands and you know, the reception Valentino Rossi got, the circuit putting on the the big sort of the helicopter and everything for the farewell for him. So, yeah, I mean, to have those, we saw the F1 race also at Silverstone, huge number of fans there. So, yeah, it'll be a great event, as we say, going back to Vinales. What, what are they going to do now? I mean... <laughs> I think it was Valentino Rossi that said, maybe this is the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, if you took this in isolation, maybe you could get away with it. You know, he, he would get a good telling off. Don't ever do that again. But when you've already, you know, you've negotiated to leave the team at the end of the year, it's obviously a tense situation. We spoke about it before. How do you then manage if you've already said you don't want to be in the team, basically, and then you have to stay with them for the, for the last half of the season? That's difficult in itself. And then you have this going on. So, you know, the... the they, they saw the, the evidence, if you like, on the telemetry and the, and the videos. They wouldn't have made this kind of call unless they were sure. So what happens next? I mean, you know, it, it's the, the, only, the only perhaps reason to maybe just wait and calm down and look at the championship table is it'll be very hard for Yamaha to win the team's championship without Vinales. They can win the Riders' Championship. They can win the Constructors' Championship because Quattararo, you know, he's doing such a good job. That's fine. But for the team's championship, it's both riders that count in each team, obviously. So that's going to be hard for Yamaha, you know, to keep hold of that. They're leading it at the moment. They're leading all three championships. They're on the way for a perfect year. Now, do they, in effect, say, OK, we're willing to perhaps sacrifice that championship because, you know, just to just to stop this situation that we're in with Maverick or do they sort of swallow their pride a bit and, and, and maybe say, well, look, do we give them a second chance? That's that's the decision they've got to make. Teams Championship, Manufacturers Championships are massive. Julian Ryder, my old partner in commentary, you know, he always used to bang the drum about the Manufacturers Championship. It's more important than the Riders Championship to the factory at the end of the day. So giving that up will be a big deal if Yamaha are prepared to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, he is absolutely... Do you know what I find, and this is where the mental health thing comes in, what on earth did he think? I mean, these guys think faster than, than I can speak. I mean, it's, it's incredible how quick these guys think. They're on their feet. They're, they're absolutely the sharpest men in the world. So what on earth was he thinking? What, what was he thinking? What the achievement was going to be? I mean, them bikes, they know if you fart. You know, it records everything. There's nothing telemetry on those bikes. It doesn't matter what you do. It's all in the telemetry. So there was no way he was ever going to get away with it. Did he want them to fire him? Was that the was that the issue? Was it a situation where he wanted someone else to to get him out of there? You know, but I'm a top rider. Get me out of here as quick as you can, please. I mean, I I don't understand it. And but having seen his 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 apology, it seems now that he's had this 
realization that he might not be racing at somewhere like Silverstone, which which is a great racetrack and a, and a great event. And suddenly it's, it's dawned on him. It seems like everything he's doing is knee jerk, um, which, again, comes under the, the mental health issue, not not thinking rationally about what he's doing. I think Yamaha will take the risk and um, not run him. I think they're going to I think they're going to enjoy Cal and Jake in you know, Cal in the factory team at Silverstone, it would seem at the moment, all the, the contacts I've had with the, the track remotely have been that that's what's going to happen. Cal on the factory bike, Jake on the Patronus bike, that, you know, it's it's going to be a very exciting British Grand Prix from that perspective. Um, and can't wait to get there. It's only two weeks. <laughs> so it is only two weeks. But in that respect, then, if you think he might potentially miss Silverstone as well. Do you think Vinales will come back at all this season? Do you think Yamaha will take this opportunity to just say, okay, no, you're done, bye? I think Pete's, Pete's hit the nail on the head when he talks about the manufacturer's um, uh, awards. I mean, they're, they're so big to the Japanese. Like I say, they're on holiday at the moment in Japan, but this will this is going to be a, you know, this week would have been a major issue, um, especially when all the footage got out there. I mean, we were hearing from still photographers, you will have done as well, Pete, for Crash, that, you know, still photographers that are around on their scooters around the track, um, taking photographs, so they were all wondering what on earth was going on because he was on the rev limiter. You look at the, you look at our ridiculously simple telemetry. In other words, the sheets that come out from MotoGP every single week, and top speed was off by by miles an hour, where he was revving it out in a, in a lower gear than it should have been in. You know, you could see it on the, the top speed was, you know, something like 15 kilometers an hour down in in the places where he was over revving the thing in the wrong gear. It was madness. It was a it was a, a moment of madness from from Maverick Vinales, but it goes it's got to go further than that. As far as I'm aware, he hasn't signed a deal with anybody yet, and they're all going to be thinking to themselves, "What? What are we possibly taking on here? Is this guy going to? You know, the Yamaha is the best motorcycle at the moment. It's leading the world championship. You can do just about whatever you want on it and any track you want to do it on. You know, if you make it work for you." Um, he obviously can't make it work for him and the team. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, the team, can you imagine what they're like? They're working their what's-its off every single night of the week, getting these motorcycles absolutely bang on right. And there's their rider basically slapping their face. It's it's just an awful situation. Who is going to take the risk with Maverick Vinales after this? Where's he going to go? It was interesting that the first TV station that I think he did the interview with when he kind of broke his silence was the Italian. Italian, Italian station. And this is the feeling is that maybe some of his advisors or said, you know, a bit like Keith was saying, Maverick, you're going to have to say something, you know? And it, so it was interesting that he chose the Italians first and, and to perhaps put his side out and apologize got, and everything else. Let off in that interview though, Pete, didn't he really? The guy that was doing the interview didn't nail him. I mean, if it had been any of us, he'd have been nailed to the post because you, you've got to know these things. If he's coming public with his apology then therefore you have got to stress him regarding that apology and ask him you know are you really in trouble are you, are you, do you need to reach out is there is there something here that you need i mean <laughs> flicking between channels which is what we all do you know when you look at the glenn irwin piece from british superbikes today um, i'm glad i recorded it i've been having a little look at it just a minute ago before we came on air here and glenn irwin's mental health issues that he had a couple of years ago were serious you know, he reached out. I mean, absolutely fair dues to Glenn. You know, our sport is, you know, it's one of them sports where no one will admit to being gay. You know, this must be the biggest group of people that I know that doesn't have a gay person in it, according to according to the paddock. Um, when we all know that that's not going to be the case. And the same thing with mental health issues. These are almost like they're taboo issues. 
in a motorcycle paddock still. And, and I find that, well, horrible, really. I mean, I think that, 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 you know, we know that with the stress in the paddock, that there are people that, that can't cope. Mechanics, managers, riders, it is a really stressful environment where high performance of everybody, everybody's thinking waking moment is about high stress, is about high performance, is about getting the best out of yourself and everything else around you. And those things bring on mental health issues. Now, this is not a new thing. It's been there since my day. I can remember that, you know, people that, that suffer from this. And if you look through the, through the record books or through your memory, if you want to, there have been people that have, have left us under these circumstances that have found it too difficult. And again, you know, uh, I think that my advice to anybody that's hearing this and feeling something like vulnerable with this, there are people you can reach out to, even if it's just a friend or your parents or, or your, you know, your brother, sister. You know, there are agencies that you can reach out to as well. That, that you need to be in touch with. You need to be in touch with yourself. And I think our paddock is only really just waking up to the fact that that, that is what you need to do. You know, Glenn Irwin, for me, is a, is, a, is a, you know, flag bearer in this situation. I mean, fair dues to the man. He has stood up. These are the problems I've had. I've had to deal with it. This is how I've dealt with it. And given advice publicly to people, I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's, it's worse at the moment with pandemic. I mean, everybody's been locked down. Everybody's shut down here, there, and everywhere. Don't matter what country you're in, what you know, ethnicity, you know, whatever you might be, everyone's under stress at the moment. There's very few people that are getting away with this lockdown situation that we've been in. The worry about your family getting sick, your worry about you know people close to you. All of that, on top of the fact that you're having to race motorbikes and so on and so forth, uh, it's, it's pretty stressful out there. And people do need to, to reach out if that's the situation. And if Maverick Vinales, bringing it back to where we're going, if Maverick Vinales is feeling that far down that rabbit hole, then I think that management need to take a grip on that and management need to, you know, take and make an assessment of what's going on with Maverick Vinales and help him. You know, it's not just about helping him go fast on a racetrack. It's about helping him when he's off the bike and helping him ride that motorbike the best he can. And I think that... You know, somebody somewhere, it's already all very well castigating him. And we've already said that he's been disrespectful. He's been bad. He's been this, he's been that. But there's got to be bigger underlying reasons for that. And so people need to look into that and need to work that out. They don't need to just ban him per se, because that, you know, could ruin the man's life forever. Um, so I think there's, there's so much more to this. I'm not qualified in any way, shape or form. Um, but I'm, I've been observing it for a great number of years. And I have seen some people that can't cope with it. And Maverick Vinales may just be one of them at this stage. It's so easy, I think, to forget that these uh, you know, these people are are just human beings at the end of the day as well. You know, they're they're athletes, and they, we put them all up on this pedestal and we watch them go racing for our entertainment. But you do forget that you don't see all the other stuff that goes on. So. I like to think, I think we all like to think, we all echo, of course, what Pete said, but, you know, he's hopefully got the right people around him and, and Yamaha, you know, if if they're smart enough, as you say, you know, he, yes, he's made some bad decisions and he should be punished for those, but why have they come about and can they help him to get out of those troubles if not the Yamaha can his team around him do that? So we, it'll be an interesting one to uh, to monitor, I think, as as the weeks uh, go by. But uh, I think we all echo what, what you said there, Keith. Um, so that was the, the huge storm, I suppose, that uh, engulfed the weekend to begin with. And then we had another bit of a blow, I think, actually, because we're talking about 
some rider changes potentially for Silverstone. One of those at the uh, Patronus SRT team with potentially, we think, Jake Dixon coming in there. But Patronus announcing they are going to end their sponsorship of the SRT team in MotoGP. And then, of course, shutting down, I think, the Moto2 and Moto3 operations. It's, it's a big blow, isn't it, Keith? Always more to it than what there appears to be. That's a fact. This will have been going on for some time. Um, I believe that Razan Razali, Joanne Stiggerfeld, will have been aware of this potential break point. Um, what they will have been trying to do is put together another replacement backer, and obviously they haven't been able to do that. And there comes a point where you have got to be able to talk to your people, so you give them half a chance to find jobs and so on and so forth. We're talking about two major sides. You know, two-thirds of their team is 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 not going to be anywhere fairly soon. And uh, I don't think anybody... It was a, a surprise. It was a bigger shock than anything, I've got to say, that, that Patronus suddenly announced that. But have they had the best out of the deal? If you look at it at the end of the day, brand spanking new team, big bucks, blasted onto the MotoGP scene. John McPhee won their first race. You know, he was the first winner in the Patronus Sepang International team. Uh, for Moto3, good PR out of Moto2 as well. Fabio Quattararo been an absolute star for them in the, in the MotoGP camp. I mean, there, there may be other reasons for it as well. I mean, Patronus obviously being Malaysian, you know, the Malaysian angle didn't pick up, did it? it we, we didn't find a Malaysian rider that's coming through their, their routes. And that will, be, that will be an issue as well when you're trying to sell something, you know, to your, uh, to your board. But all big companies have a strategy and a timeline for that strategy. And they all have breakpoints at some stage, and clearly that's been reached. It's got to where they feel, you know, they've done as much as they can do with where it is. They had the icon that is Valentino Rossi sign on. That was, you know, that's an interesting dimension. I mean, it's as much negative as it is positive, if you ask me, in as much as the team haven't performed in that side of the garage, you know, because Valentino is not on the kind of form that they might have hoped that he would have been as, uh, to match his big name. Um, the fact that Valentino's retiring this year, Patronas pull out at the same time, there's some kind of you know, linkage there, I suppose, as well. I mean, it's, I think the, the, the main thing from my perspective is, is that knowing big companies and having dealt with them before on big sponsorship deals, that will have been planned. That won't be, a, it won't be as knee-jerk as it appears. Um, the only reason it hasn't been announced prior is because they've been given... Um, the Sepang International Race Team, time to try and put something else in place. Clearly, they haven't been able to do that. The funding they have will carry them through in MotoGP, but not funding Moto3 and Moto2 at the same time. So um, it's a demise of, a you know, <laughs> I mean, only things like yesterday when that team was formed. They had, what, three or four months to get a workshop round and get every, all the personnel on board. And it was at the same time when KTM was sucking all the top techs out of the paddock, weren't they? Because KTM were expanding their stuff. So really really a fantastic job and not an easy time to to achieve what they achieved from from a, a technical point of view you know like i say ktm were really sucking the guts out i mean repsol honda lost i don't know how many people that went to, to ktm as well so so i think patronus you know sepang international racing team have done a fantastic job and that, you've got to feel a bit sorry for them haven't you pete absolutely absolutely and as you say, Keith, Patronus were an integral part of the whole move to MotoGP, weren't they? I mean, the, you know, this came about because Patronus were willing to fund it from the start. It wasn't that the, the, the Sepang team were going and then they looked for a sponsor. You know, Patronus were there right from the beginning when all of the talks of, well, can we do it? Yes, we're interested. OK. And then Razan went ahead and, you know, knowing that he had 
the Petronas backing him, went ahead and, and, and did the deals, if you like. So it is quite a surprise as, as to why the, the contract is ending this year. So it's it's not like they're, they're cutting and running or anything like that. It's just they're not going to extend it. As Keith said, you know, there will be reasons for that. All we hear is the sort of the marketing, well, we've achieved everything we set out to achieve. I mean, is that true? I mean, it depends on what they're aiming for, doesn't it? But it's hard to see, you know, it's been such a success story. So it's hard to see an exact reason as to why they would want to quit now. You know, they've they, they've had great success with the MotoGP team. Okay, this year has not gone so well. But as Keith said, they've got, you know, Valentino Rossi in his final year. Yamaha are paying his wages. You know, you, if you were offered the most famous motorcycle rider in history and you don't have to pay his wages... And I mean, every picture, every montage of Valentino Rossi's career that comes out in the next 50 years will end with him in Petronas livery, won't it? I mean, it's, you know, it was a fantastic, just on the marketing terms, they've had a fantastic exposure from that alone. So, you know, why is it happening now? Is it because of, you know, financial, you would imagine, is always a factor to a greater or lesser degree? There's the lockdowns in Malaysia. I guess people aren't filling their cars up with petrol. The factories are maybe not, you know, using as much you know, oil, gas and everything else. Is that having an impact? Petronas is state-owned, Sepang Circuit is state-owned. Um, you know, the press release was interesting. It came out from the Sepang Circuit, not the Sepang Racing Team as such. And the press release sort of made clear that it will be a new entity and, and sort of implied anyway that, that the team will separate from the Sepang Circuit. So, it sounds like Keith agrees, so that's good. Um and, and so it won't even be called, I guess, the Sepang Racing Team next year. We'll have a new a new name. You know, hopefully they will find some form of new sponsor, but replacing Petronas would be a, a massive task. It, and you would judge by the fact they're closing, as Keith says, the Moto2 and Moto3 teams, that, that they haven't found a suitable replacement. And also the fact that we're hearing there'll be B-Spec Yamahas next year they'll, they'll have. Well, B-Spec, I mean, what are they? I mean, we've got factory spec and A-Spec at the moment. So B-Spec, is that two-stroke? I mean, you know, how... you know. <laughs> it, it it just gives the impression that, that clearly the money situation is tight. The team will be will be reorganizing, you know, they'll they'll be resetting and they'll be trying to rebuild for the future. But sadly that means that the motor two and motor three teams won't won't continue. I think what you've got to think about as well, Pete, is that um if they're resetting in the manner that they appear to be and splitting that off, every entity has to actually cover its own books. So Pang International, the actual track itself doesn't make that much money anyway. They dropped Formula One some time ago in favour of MotoGP. I don't think we're going to have a MotoGP there this year. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for that to be the next, you know, announcement that we get from that part of the world is that Sepang have, have looked at the pandemic situation. I mean, in Thailand at the minute, I noticed the other day that they'd, they'd announced, I think it is a 30-day quarantine now when you come into Thailand. There, there was something huge that I saw in a press release recently. I haven't checked that, by the way, Pete. No, you're locked down there forever. <laughs> but, but obviously... Malaysia, Malaysia, you know, the circuit itself doesn't make that much money. So therefore, that's got to tick over. It's got its own bookwork that it has to account for its money. The race team has to account for its money. Patronus obviously has to account for its money. And at the moment, those three things that were all, all as one are, are not anymore. And, you know, and if they've got to buy bikes, if they're not getting free bikes from Yamaha, they're not getting free A-spec bikes from Yamaha, and they've got to start leasing them like most independent teams have to in some way, shape or form, um, suddenly your, your costs have gone through the sky again. It's, it's going to be tough time, which is su I mean, it's such a shame for such a great team that's come from absolutely nowhere, just with the will. I mean, Razlan Razali was, what was he? He was the circuit manager originally, mm -hmm. Lisa Pang. 
you know, and then he became CEO and then he became the, you know, dropped that particular handle and went across to, to be the, the top man at the, the race team. Um, he's a very smart guy, but at the end of the day, you, you can only do so much juggling if the money's not there. So I think the only thing we can finish on that one is we wish them well with whatever happens to them because it will be a great shame if that fantastic vision that they had to put them where they put themselves, um, just a disaster really. The only thing I would just like to add is I, I think there's quite a lot of people in, in Malaysia maybe thinking, is this because Patronus, the, the argument that you brought up earlier, Keith, about there's no Malaysian riders, you know, is that why maybe Patronus have kind of, you know, they're thinking we don't want to continue with this. But all I would say to that is that I think Patronus have been involved in every major decision the team has taken, you know, from choosing Yamaha. That was that was a Patronus decision. Suzuki was also an option. Um, to choosing the riders, I don't believe they would have signed the riders they signed without the permission or, or the you know the backing, the full backing of Patronus. So I think Rasmus Ali has always sort of made clear Patronus wanted results over the nationality of the riders. So I, I think that particular one, for me personally, I, I'm not convinced on that. There's a it's lot of talk of, apparently among Malaysian fans of that one. It's kind of the next stage, I think, with that kind of situation when you're moving into your next phase of chucking away, chucking away investing millions in a racing team that's when you start to look at the other angles as well what are the other angles from a from a political from a, a local geopolitic political i can't even say it right i need another coffee <laughs> the race today has blown my head off um, but it's a situation where the next phase what's they will have looked at the next phase now if there had been hafish shireen or somebody like that that's in the pipeline that's looking good from malaysia if there'd been that on the ladder then maybe that could have justified you could have sold it to them for another, you know, three years perhaps, but um, there isn't, so they haven't. And just on the funding thing, the point Keith makes about the leasing of the bikes, <clears throat> in MotoGP, of course, they want to support the satellite teams, you know, with a lot of money, don't they? I think it's 5 million euros. It's 2.5 million per rider, so 5 million euros a team you get for, for MotoGP. So if you're getting, let's say, these B-spec bikes, they're, they're almost certainly not going to be the full two and a half million. That would be the, the factory spec. So therefore, the teams get to keep the change, if that makes sense. And there's quite a lot of change. If uh, you can imagine if the bikes are, what do they cost? Maybe a million each. You, you know, that's two million on the bikes and you've got five million from Dorna. There's three million that you can put towards the running of the team. That's not the case for Moto2 and Moto3. The, the, the numbers are a lot lower, obviously, because they're, they're of less important. So um, it can actually turn out that the financial side to running a Moto2 team in terms of the money you need to find is not that dissimilar from the money you need to find for a satellite MotoGP team. So that may also be a factor in why, you know, they chose to keep the MotoGP team going. They've got the deal with Dorna for five years. You know, that's that's solid. That's That's got a very good value to it in itself because you can't just turn up and say, put me on the MotoGP grid. Numbers are limited. The deal with Yamaha isn't official, but, you know, it must be happening. There's no other teams left. We assume that will be, what will it be, usually three-year deal. Um, so, you know, so they have got some solid contracts in place, even though they have lost Patronus. So it's not it's not the end of the world, but clearly this will be a major change and, and a new beginning for the team. MotoGP just never has really any quiet weekends, do they, anymore? Uh, it always seems like there's some sort of huge breaking news story. And, and just lastly as well, before we come on to the actual race action eventually, 
I was uh, some of the uh, the fallout from uh, Styria last weekend about the Michelin tires, which actually came out really and shone into light post our recording. Because I know we got a lot of questions about why we didn't cover it. Well, it's because we didn't know about it at the time. But now we do. So we're going to just briefly talk about it. Because Michelin, especially with Miguel Oliveira, we saw the photos that were revealed afterwards. A big chunk missing from one of those tires, it seemed almost. So actually, Pete, maybe it's, we should come to you first on this. What were the the issues essentially that were going on last weekend and now Michelin have brought they brought some harder tires this weekend as well and changed it up seemed to fare well but then of course we had different conditions yeah so so going back to last weekend the, the KTM's in general I, I guess going back to the start of this year they, they've they've been wanting a harder front tire and the tire that they really liked last year has sort of been swapped for this asymmetric as they call it so different compounds on either side of the tire uh, hard front and they sort of were worried that it might be borderline at a circuit like Austria where it's so hard on the braking. Now, it, it turned out to be okay for all the other riders, but unfortunately for Miguel, it wasn't. Now, when we spoke to Miguel afterwards, he, as he as he admitted later, he was very polite with his words. He was very careful with what he said, and he just mentioned it. I had to stop. I had a tire problem. And then we see the pictures, and there were at least two, you know, big chunks of the tread missing. So it was it was it was a fairly significant problem. Now, Michelin reacted to that by changing the hard front tire for what they call a symmetric one. So the same compound all the way across, a bit harder for this weekend's race. So the one that, that, that went wrong for Miguel, it was assumed it was a manufacturing defect. But still, the whole selection, if you like, of that, that option was taken out of the selection. This new tar, hard tie was brought in and, and there were no problems this weekend as far as I know. Always tricky with tyres and always tricky for the likes of Michelin. You either you can provide tyres like we've seen Dunlop provide in the past for someone like Moto2 where the tyre is a bowling ball. How many times do we hear that said in, in Moto2? You provide, if it's a one-make tyre, the tendency is to make a tyre that's going to go round and round and round and round for as long as you like and be bulletproof. If you're going to be closer to the edge, which is where Michelin are with MotoGP, and quite right too, it's a prototype series. You're looking for performance, not just from the motorbike, but from tyres as well. If you're going to run it a bit closer to the edge, then sometimes it's just a little bit for some manufacturers. What always amazes me is how we, we end up with, you know, all these manufacturers, all these different technologies on each of the motorbikes and the way the chassis work. And we end up with them within a thousandth of a second over a, over a three mile lap or whatever it might be. It's incredible, really. And, the t and tires have got a lot to do with that. You know, some tire configurations suit certain motorbikes. Some configurations suit others. The wonderful thing about uh, Michelin, I think, is that, the massive overlap that they have between each of their compounds. You know, the construction of their tyres, like, you know, Honda like to run the hard construction, but that doesn't mean that the, the compound that's on that harder construction is less grippy than the softer one. It's just, it's got a bit more squidged attached to it. I'm sorry for the technical term, but um, <laughs> it work, and that works better on, on some motorcycles. Some riders are, you know, Zarco is notorious for running a, a softer setup than, than maybe some. Um, so when you get a, a bit of a, a, an anomaly like we had with Oliveira with that chunking front tyre, you've seen it before, but you know, Michelin do a fantastic job. And to, to, the problem as well with a place like um, Red Bull Ring is it could be 10 degrees or it could be 60 degrees of track temperature. You know, you're making a tyre that's, that's got to work in somewhere in amongst that parameter. Then you've got a, a, the fact of the matter is if a tyre gets hot, it starts to balloon. And by that, your pressure goes up in a tyre. The hotter a tyre gets, the, the, the more... The, the, the tire starts to balloon and therefore takes away some of that contact patch. So you lose grip and therefore it gets even hotter. So, that, you know, you, you set a tire pressure at the beginning of a race, 
expecting it to reach X, whatever that working temperature will be, and that will give you the kind of squidge that you want out of the tyre and the, and the optimum performance out of it. Go the wrong side of that either side, and you've got all sorts of problems. Um, and that really does link quite neatly into this week, of course, when some of them are running slick tyres in the rain, but we'll get there in a bit. Well, it, well, thankfully, there weren't any uh, there weren't any defects this weekend. I think we can say that. Uh, but let's get into it then, shall we? Into the race action because well, it was it was all a bit manic, wasn't it? It started with the, with the threat of rain right from the very off, but that actually held off for a fair while and allowed us to really enjoy some some fantastic fighting for the leading spots between Bagnaya, uh, Marquez, Martin, Zarco, Quattararo all having a superb battle for those uh, top positions. Uh, every lap, it seemed to be changing. In the end, it looked like it was Bagnaya who took the lead early on and looked pretty good. And then the rain came down and it all changed in those final few laps. But even before the rain, it was, it was, I mean, how was your heart rate, Keith? Were you all right with it? I was behind the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those ones where, I mean, having been there, and done that and been on a grid when it's spitting with rain and you're trying to make tire choices and the, and doesn't matter how you find your zone your zen zone that you're you're just trying to focus on what you've got to do and you can you can see them little sprinkles just appearing on the top of your visor and on the on the screen on the front of the bike and you're thinking yeah and you're looking around anxiously to see what everyone else has done when they pull the tire warmers off and stuff like that to see what's going on i mean uh, marquez you know he went for a soft rear straight away. He was the only guy that was out there on a soft rear. He decided that he was going to preempt a flag-to-flag -flag race, although it started as a as a dry race, didn't it? So it's, uh, at the end of the day, it was one of the ones where he decided he was going to go with that soft rear tyre to get the benefit early on in that race. And, I mean, Marquez was there or thereabouts all the way through that early stuff. I don't know. The Red Bull ring always gives us great racing. I mean, it always seems to give us those kind of electrifying races. And quite and exactly what everybody says, we're not smarter than anybody else that watches this stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all said last week, didn't we? It'll be a completely different race this week. You can have it at the same track, same bike, same blokes riding them, and it will be a completely different race. And, of course, it was completely different. Um, I mean, the pole position, it would have been the only time ever. This is Dr. Martin Reigns, not me, because I only... I, I only associate with smart people because I'm not one. And uh, Dr. Martin Rain said it would have been the only time that a, a rookie has got pole position two two times on the trot and won the race two times on the trot. It would have been the only time that's ever happened. Um, and it did look, I mean, I forget which one of you two picked Jorge Martin for the win this week. Was it you, Pete? <laughs> and I was thinking all the way through the bloody watching the early part of it, I was thinking, bastard, which one was it? <laughs> Well, that's Who the thing. Unfortunately, it? none of us scored yeah. points this week. But uh, Pete did go for Martin. I went for Zarco. So the heartbreak when he slid out from turn nine as well. Huge championship ramifications for that as well. He slipped down to fourth now, I think, in the championship. Yeah, he has, which, oh, so not a good day for Zarco. Because he, he had the speed. He was fighting at the top there, but just a mistake. Yeah, but he didn't get on too well with that corner, did he? That's the second time he'd been down on that particular corner. So uh, it's one of them situations with Zarka. Again, with all of these guys, they are right on the very, very edge. You know, this is such a fine line, and it really, really is such a fine line. And I don't know why. I, I mean, I've said it before. Zarko just seems to be one of those guys that, as you're right on the edge of things, you always wonder whether it's going to happen to him. You know, he, he doesn't... I don't think I'd put money on him at the beginning of the year to win a championship in MotoGP. 
it just seems like he's not going to be able to do the whole season without these kind of unforced errors. And, and it was interesting, Keith, because of course his teammate won, you know, and, and everyone had kind of expected that, that, that Zarko would be the guy to take the first Pramac win, you know, and then suddenly his rookie teammate comes and takes it. And so it's like, well, how would he react to that? And actually in practice, he looked really strong, didn't he? It looked like, well, he's, he, you know, he's really responding well to this and, and, and he, he, he looked pace wise, you know, capable of fighting for the victory, but yeah, in the in the race, he, he just looked like he was having to push a little bit too hard. A bit like Jack Miller, actually. You know, Jack said that you know he was having to push too hard. He didn't have the grip that he had even in the warm up, and he was just struggling and struggling. And and you know, as we know with Jack, he sort of he saw the rain coming and he and he dived into the pits. But he said really it was just playing the Joker card. He had nothing left. He he knew that he couldn't stay with him. Now, you know whether that was the case with Zarko as well, that he, he, for some reason, he wasn't able to replicate the pace that he thought he had. So he found himself over the limit. Who knows? But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, as you say, down to fourth in the championship. And um, yeah, you, you know, momentum is definitely with Banyaya and Mia who have now moved ahead of him. It's amazing how much difference a few degrees make, a different day, the angle of the sun, the, the dangle of the trees, whatever it might be. There is always something that makes the tiniest little bit of difference from a weekend to weekend. That's why, you know, it's like why we said last week it will be a completely different race meeting this weekend. And it can be different on different days. You could, you could wake up in the morning on a Sunday and for some reason, something's not working. But it's only off by a tiny amount. That feel that you have to have when you ride a motorcycle, particularly in changing conditions, a little bit of raindrops on your visor, on the track, and it makes a difference. You can feel it. And it's almost indiscernible, but it's there. You know, it's a, something that makes the difference. And if you keep pushing, you know, you end up like Zarko did, sadly. Yeah, let's uh, let's switch across to the factory Ducatis. Pick up on, on Jack Miller there, who you said, you know, didn't really have much to lose playing that Joker card. It looked like it was kind of the, just about the right time to come in anyway. Um, and he was followed in, I think, by uh, by Rins as well. Bagnaya, though, uh looking incredibly strong even before that on the other side of the garage and was one of the riders who came in to, to change to wets and then overtook seven bikes, I think it was, in the last lap to get second. It's the easiest thing in the world, Harry, when you see the guy in front of you die for pit lane. You do the same. You have two choices. You have two choices at that point. You take the gamble, like Brad Binder did. Brad Binder thought... If it doesn't rain too badly, I can hang on. What they got? Six laps to go or something? I can't remember exactly. I think it was something like six laps. You know, and the fact is, is that when they started putting their hands in the air, looking around for a bit of support, as soon as the first one of that lot dived down pit lane, everybody else did. I remember thinking to myself, no, you're throwing the race away. And as it turned out, they did. Only for second place, though. They, they recovered for Banyai to make that second place. It's, you know, Brad Binder, his gamble was... I'm in a position here where I think I can ride this thing if it doesn't rain. But, of course, it carried on raining. They weren't to know how much more it was going to rain. Binder, in the end, if you've never ridden... Road bikes, they've got steel brakes on. They're with you all the time. Steel brakes, they work come rain, come shine, come whatever it is. Steel brakes, lovely things. Um, carbon brakes, as soon as they lose temperature, they don't work. You might as well put your hand on the tyre and try and stop it. There is no brake. You can pull, 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 pull. And there is no brake there because it's lost its operating temperature. And the same with a slick. A slick tyre, it's not about clearing water. It hadn't got a clear water. There wasn't enough on that. What it's about is moving the tyre around enough to heat the rubber. As soon as you lose the temperature in the tyre, 
it's like riding on a brick. You have got zero adhesion to the floor. And add a little greasy surface be between you and the, and the track as well, and it makes it even worse. So as soon as you lose heat in your brakes, heat in your tyres, I can't tell you how difficult it is to ride that motorbike. Anybody that's a, a bike racer that was watching that would, would have chewed down to their knuckles because it, it's the most frightening scenario you've ever seen. You shut the throttle. If you roll the throttle off too hard, the back comes round on you because there's no grip at all, even on the on engine braking, because your maps aren't ma meant to operate in that zone, in that situation. So everything is wrong. So for Brad Binder to finish, I mean, some people might, might be at home and thinking, well, yeah, he rode it in the royal, you know, rode it round in the wet and he got it home and he won the race. Da -de da -de da. It seemed like that. Honestly, it is like being on ice with no brakes. You know, if you if you if you want to ride your push bike out on some ice, some go and go and have a ride around on ice, and and it, it's literally like that. It's mega unpredictable. There's no way. I mean, he hung on. He even got a penalty at the end because he slip slod through the, the last corner and got a, a three second penalty or whatever it was, two second penalty um, at the end of it. Um, luckily, he'd got enough still in hand for that penalty not to have affected. But I was in fear. I, I remember I was counting straight back. I was looking at the sheets and everything, and as they're coming through on my computer, thinking. <gasps> Because KTM, massive deal for them, winning at their home Grand Prix. I mean, KTM had a clean sweep, didn't they? Moto3, Moto2 and MotoGP. I mean, obviously, Moto2 is a bit of a cheat because it's a Triumph with a Calix frame, but but it's got a K KTM livery on it. <laughs> Fernandez, Fernandez won it as, a, as a, a Red Bull KTM. So so effectively, KTM on the Austrian track uh, had a clean sweep right the way through. Uh, it wasn't a Red Bull liveried KTM that won the Moto3, but it was still a... It was either a gas, what was it, a gas gas or a Aspana or a KTM? I can't remember. I'll have to look at my sheet. Hang on. Put me glasses. <laughs> <laughs> it was Fernandez and Ayagura. It was a gas gas. It was Garcia, yeah, yeah. which is a KTM. Which is a gear. Yeah. Sorry. It was certainly a good day for, for Brad Binder, who, who was brave enough to make that call. Fortunately, his teammate got it all wrong, and it seems like it's. Got, got a bit wrong for him since the summer break. We were all talking about Miguel Oliveira after his win, his breakthrough in, in the in the KTM. Crashed out in turn one. Uh, it just hasn't really gone his way since since the since his win, really. Well, he wanted to get home early to his wife that's now pregnant. Could be the reason. He's got a lot going on in his head at the moment, if you think about it. He's just got married. His wife is pregnant. Um, you know, things aren't quite turning out the way they are. I always believe these things are connected. I mean, you know, it's you have to have a, a, an incredible brain to be able to cope with all of the things that that young man is having to cope with at the moment. You know, he's 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 back at a track that he does well at. Uh, it hasn't quite worked for him. He's he's not in quite the place he was expecting to be on. Everyone else has made a bit of a step. Um, you know, and, and I, I said it in a kind of flippant manner, but I mean, marrying and having a pregnant wife are quite big deals i can vouch for that as well in my life it's uh, it, it kind of does you know it has your your focus is sort of split quite rightly too but maybe not as far as the team's concerned well it, it is a mental game isn't it as much as as anything else uh Pete? now let's come on to um sorry let's come on to yamaha actually i want to i want to just talk about fabio Quartararo, um who finished seventh in the end out of all of that was being pretty brave on the brakes as well in his battles with uh, with Mark Marquez as well, right at the front. And 
got actually into a few mistakes as well, going very deep into a few corners, turn three, turn four, losing a lot of time, doing the same thing again. Uh, and actually, I think we've got a couple of questions in um, from some of our listeners who were a bit annoyed that he didn't really get a huge penalty for those uh, those incidents and going off track and things like that. So, Quartararo, what did you make of his race? Because, you know, for a championship, for cur- currently in the championship, it wasn't didn't like he was, you know, riding particularly with that in mind. You've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> the nail on the head there, Harry. That's exactly what Fabio said. He said he wasn't thinking of the championship during that dry part of the race. He was just going for it, and he said he it was incredible to be fighting for the victory. You know, on the Yamaha at this Ducati KTM, if you like, track to be up there fighting for the win. He, he said it fantastic. He said that then when it started to rain, that was when he started to think, okay, we need some points here, and, that and that's when he started to make mistakes. <laughs> and that's when everything, yeah. And and, and as soon as you start thinking about stuff, I mean, that, he was going flat out because that keeps your focus and your concentration. As soon as you start drifting and thinking about that championship. <laughs> and, and interesting, just going back on what Keith said about following other riders into the pits. Now, he was one of those guys in that league group. And, you know, Mark Marquez, well, I think probably most interesting thing I thought from what he said, he, he had a lot to say about the tyres and everything else. But when he decided to pit, when he saw the rain, he then went, went into the lead because he knew, as Keith said, the others would follow him. And so by doing that, he pulled into the pits in the lead. The others all went in. So if he got it wrong, they would all have got it wrong. But Brad Binder was the guy who thought for himself and went, hang on a minute. And because of that, Brad went and won. But, but that's Mark with that, that extra dimension of just, you know, just with everything going on, he's thinking, shall I pit now, everything else? You know, it's safer to follow the other bikes in the group. Hang on a minute. If I, if I lead the group, the others will follow me. And even if we get it wrong, we're all getting it wrong together as the lead group. And, uh, you know, is these blokes are hanging onto a motorbike that's trying to kill them at every corner. They're doing nearly 200 mile an hour in most places. And they're making these calculations simultaneously as well. There's no ship to shore radio. There's no crew chief in a Formula One type situation where they're able to, you know, even the dashboard messages are restricted to certain messages. You know, so you're, you're in a situation where the information that a rider has is pretty much in his head as much as anywhere else. <laughs> and for him to be thinking along those lines and for Binder to be thinking along those lines, I mean, I'm sure Binder if he'd thought that every other rider on the racetrack could gain 15 seconds a lap on him as soon as they got back out again, he might have been one that was diving down pit lane as well. But I think what he was gambling on was the, the rain not coming quite as wet as it did, quite as, as heavy as it turned out in the end. You know, as it turned out, it, it, I mean, at one point, it looked like Valentino Rossi, it would, would that have been his 200th podium or something? Yes. I seem to remember that would have been. But he, even he was thwarted. I mean, that would have been a great thing, wouldn't it? Um I tell me, I had that rattling around in my head when he was. I was gutted when Laquona started, started, started to fall down the uh, the order. I really thought, go on, go on, you well, just lost. I mean, a, you just lost a ride. But all of these guys are, are working. You know, they're, they're. I'm amazed. If it had been Moto Three or Moto Two, you'd have had carnage. There'd have been people crashing everywhere. But somehow, MotoGP, they have the mature. They have brains that are just a level above to be able to work to go as fast as they can on whatever they're on. Pretty much without crashing. Okay, Zarko accepted. There, there are always going to be crashes in a race anyway. But, but the fact is, is that the calculations that they're making. When you've got someone that flies past you on a better set of tires, and you're on slicks that are getting colder and brakes that are getting cooler, the natural tendency is to just squeeze it a little bit harder, just to get on the gas a fraction earlier and brake a fraction later. And the only time you realise when you've got that completely wrong is when you're kissing the dirt. Um, so to be able to restrict yourself to what you know 
works in those conditions live at the time in real time is just i can't tell you how much respect i have for these guys that we've got now in 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 bike racing i mean they really are just a little bit special it's incredibly impressive isn't it um now your prediction keith this weekend was actually for a suzuki win uh, in the form of Joanne Mir. Now, he did finish fourth in the end, um, but Suzuki, Rins was all the way back in 14th at the end of all of that. Suzuki still seemingly developing this new rear ride height device they've got as well. They made, Did they benefit from the fact that, you know, we've had two consecutive weekends in Austria, so it's the same track, get more data. But also, you know, fourth is not bad, but it's not, it's not the win. As you I think everyone was expecting a great deal more. I think Mia and Rins particularly were expecting a great deal more. A week on from that, you know, that was a fantastic debut for the new shapeshifter type affair, the whole shot device, whatever they're, you know, I don't know what the terminology Suzuki are using for it, but, um, you know, it was a fantastic bit of kit. They did their homework really well in the, in the five-week break and they came out with the only thing that they didn't have compared with everyone else and it worked first time out. And I genuinely believed, and I think everybody else did as well, and, you know, like I say, not rocket science, I thought, as you say, with data and with, their expectation was much higher for this weekend. But it just didn't seem to work for them. Rins didn't seem anywhere near like at the races regarding it. You know, Mia just didn't seem quite the, the guy he was last week. And that just comes back into what I said. A week on, you know, things change, tracks change, the field changes, and, and there you are. He wasn't the man do for you, the day. Do you think it's also, Keith, because they don't have a satellite team, you know, and it seems like with these back-to-back races, Suzuki, from what we saw last year, they didn't really make a big step. We saw some KTM, I think, were perhaps one of the biggest steps last year anyway, from, from race to race on the two at the same track. Suzuki don't have the satellite team. Do you think it's the data thing that's maybe also a factor? Or? I, I think there's always there's always that factor in there because, you know, you're doing, you've got to do twice the work to get to what a team can do when they've got four riders on bikes. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it is what it is. And I, I think, though, that there was expectation and quite justifiably an expectation that Suzuki would do better this week. And that's, that's why I chose Mia. But you always got to choose based on the weather. You know, my my feeling was that if the, if it stayed dry, Mia would have been nearer to it. As it turns out, because it was wet and horrible, Mia was further up the order than he would have been if it had been dry. As it turns out, I mean, I think that his ride wasn't particularly sparkling in the dry. It was only when everybody started shuffling the pack down in pit lane. And honestly, I bet you, you bloody Formula One guys, I bet you're all falling about laughing when you watch our pit stops. I bet you just fall over laughing. I mean. Bloody Red Bull can change four wheels in 1.8 seconds and get out of the way and not fall over themselves. Our blokes look like bloody, honestly, hop, skip, jump, falling over each other, kicking the bike, kicking one of the mechanics got kicked in the face. I mean, it's just, you think to yourself, do these blokes never ever practice this? It just looks terrible. Well, yeah, I know. I know you would do because you're a car man. And at the end of the day, that's about the only thing you can be spectacular at. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Harry. Oh, wow. I mean, who was? I think Jack, Jack Miller had a particularly, uh, I think, a bit of a clunky uh, stop. Well, it's, it's just clumsy. I mean, it's just. I, I mean, like, and it can only come down to practice. You know, you know, Red Bull. They are pushing that car in and out of that zone hours a day, working their guys to death on it because it makes such a difference. You know. Why would you spend millions of pounds on a motorbike that you're trying to get half a second a lap out of or a tenth or whatever it is, and then you give away a second and a half in a lousy pit stop? You know, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and and, and I, never, I never understand why on a Wednesday when we arrive at the track, or a Thursday, if you like, at the latest, you're in Presto and stuff like that, 
why there are not teams pushing bikes in and, and practicing that hop, skip and a jump into the into the zone. I don't get it. And I mean, Jax was, was, in fact, they all looked like they were going to fall over. I mean, it, it just looked daft in places. And I, well, I mean, Miller really, really, really came in before Mir and then Mir got out before him and finished fourth. Where did Miller finish all the way down in 11th? So, I mean, I know there's more, more at play there, but that could have, you know, a quicker pit stop would have had a dramatically different outcome. Well, I think yeah, it comes under the heading of must do better. And uh, but the problem is, is that, that this has been going on now for years since we've had flag to flag, and 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 kind of it's been going on for years. And we say it every time, well, why don't why does that look so scruffy? Why why doesn't that actually work for the teams? Because no one's taken it seriously enough. You know, <laughs> I, I always think it's a bit like stop here and go there and. You know, and, and all this stuff. And I think it must sit on the workshop wall and, oh, it might rain. We better unhook that now and bring it, bring it to the front of the garage. <laughs> and it's literally, um, it's one of those slightly amusing situations in MotoGP that just shouldn't happen. You know, it should be the slickest thing you've ever seen. A rider should come in, hit his marks, put one foot down because you've got to put a foot on the floor now. You can't do what Marquez used to do, leap from one. You've got to bring the clutch in and put it in gear, whereas in the old days when they first started this, a mechanic mechanic already had it in gear with the clutch closed. So all you've got to do is jump on it, gas it up and dump the clutch. That's not allowed now. You've got to do that as a rider because you can imagine, you know, like kind of get it wrong and dump the clutch and it goes to the back of the garage at 100 miles an hour. (laughs) So there are quite a lot of things that could go wrong in one of these pit stops. But you would just think that by now, MotoGP might have got, or, or not MotoGP, it's not the rules, it's the way that they've been uh, interpreted, delivered by the teams in pit lane. And of course, just one extra one on from that, of course, it is different in every pit lane. It's difficult for, for, for right, the angles of the bikes and stuff like that. If you've got Phillip Island that's about as wide as you know, my computer, uh, and you've got someone like Red Bull Ring or Indy that's really, really wide. You've got plenty of room to mess around in. It's, a, it's, it's different at every single track. So you must practice it at every single track. It's not like a car where it pulls up parallel and you've got the room to do what you do. Uh, it, it's much narrower. So your angle of attack and your angle of exit are, are, are slightly different as well. I don't know. It just looks wrong. And I think must do better, boys. <laughs> we do see them practice at the end of warm-up. And I think... Uh, I think yeah. what it, it reminds me of the England football team and penalty shootouts. You know, you can practice all day, but when you get that pressure, because when you see them practice in warm-up, they, 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 they go like clockwork, and then suddenly in the race, it's it chaos. Doesn't. It doesn't, Pete. They come in and it's kind of, oh, do I have to bloody do this? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it goes like clockwork, because it's so relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very, oh, bloody hell, do we have to practice this? <laughs> <laughs> From Headmaster Keith there, must do better. <laughs> Um, finally, though, uh, let's just talk about Honda. Top Honda in the end was Alex Marquez in ninth. But, of course, it was Mark Marquez who was running right at the top for, for so long and d- outdone, really, by uh, by the change uh, in weather. But, again, Honda just, well, bar Marquez, seemingly nowhere. I mean, Nakagami no, she didn't really show the pace that we thought we might see from him right at the start of the Austria, the doubleheaders. Um, but Marquez doing a good job and, and working around his pa- his pain issues that he's been having here as well. Massive pain issues. Oh, the, the, you watch him on the bike and you think, is that Mark Marquez? You just watch him whether when he dangles his leg into a corner. It's like a half half cocked leg. Everything. He just does not look right on that motorbike. He's riding it. I mean, he'll be back next year. I mean, he will work through all of this. They will do what they need to do during the, the off-season. He will be back next year. There's no doubt about it. His determination hasn't gone. He's still prepared to throw it at the fence if he needs to to go fast. 
Um, so he, he's, he's not changed in that respect. Mark Marquez will be back. This is not going to be his year. This will be, you know, a year working his way through the pain, through those, through the situation he's in. Honda will come up with a whole raft of stuff next year when we get into 2022 and the and the uh, technical freezes have, have, have gone by. I mean, uh, you said it right, I think maybe before we came on here, Harry, you know, this, this MotoGP just keeps on giving. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is in MotoGP at the moment. We just have such a great sport here. And it's going to continue next year as well. I mean, you know, I've been back in MotoGP for, what, eight years now, and, and it never stops. It's just relentlessly great. It's relentlessly good. There are, there are no one, forgive me for this, and I don't mean this as a, a side, even though I take the mickey a bit out of you four-wheel guys, you know, MotoGP is envied by all motorsports. You know, MotoGP is in such a good position. There are other great motorsports out there, obviously, four and two wheel, but, but MotoGP at the moment is giving everything. It's, it's just whatever it might be, drama, rule changes, riders, personalities. You know, we seem to, seem to have it all. And I feel next year is going to be even more so when we've got... These, the, the rule changes, the, the, the freeze that we've had on, on engine development and the like, when we get to next year, it's going to be spectacular, I feel, providing the pandemic's done and we're all able to go testing and get back down to, to work. Penalties, I thought, were very inconsistent again this weekend. You mentioned Mark Marquez, well, and I mentioned he was determined and he was going to come back next year, but, I mean, the first one where he batted Alesha out of the way, that was definitely Mark Marquez's fault. He went in too hot at Turn 1. But again, you've got to remember that, particularly at the Red Bull Ring, that turn one is an absolute sod. The first time you get to turn one throughout the whole week is when you're in a race. You've not practiced that. You're not allowed to do a start from the start line to the first turn. So when you arrive there, you arrive there at a guesstimate. You're guessing where your braking marker is. You're guessing pretty much where everyone else is. When someone else hits the, you know, the old rule of thumb from my days was when someone else hits the brake, that's when you think about it. <laughs> and you ram it up the in- and that's certainly a Mark Marquez rule of thumb because he'll stick it up the inside batted Alicia out of the way Alicia's mad as hell then we had the restart um, last time and uh, this was this obviously wasn't this week it was last week and uh, in the restart bloody hell it's, it's Mark Marquez that's belted into Alicia again now Alicia tried to lean on him and someone else was underneath Mark at the time so Mark ended up in a bottleneck but there weren't really any penalties, and we've seen some penalties delivered. I think Cameron Bobier got a penalty in, in Moto2, which I just thought, that doesn't seem right to me. It didn't seem like a penalty that was justified. It seemed like a racing incident. You know, Moto3, you know, a long lap penalty and a, and a pit lane start for a man who's just broke someone else's arm. It doesn't seem right to me. Um, Jürgen van der Gerberg, you'll all be across the Jürgen van der Gerberg um, comments regarding what's happening with Slipstream and all the rest of it, and a lot of it he has put down to, to gearing in that you're geared to a situation where you must have a slipstream to be able to pull the top two gears on a Moto3 bike. He's advocating that you narrow the, the gear ratios down so there isn't that much of a gain in a slipstream situation if you're geared correctly. Um, I won't go into it on here because I'll send everybody to sleep, but I, I, kind of, I know what he's talking about. And anybody that wants to look it up, look up Jürgen van der Gerberg because van der Gerberg knows what he's talking about. And he's absolutely right. If you've got a, a very tall top gear that you wouldn't naturally be able to pull unless you're stuck him behind someone and you swap that for a gear that's only perhaps 500 revs different from the one that previous in your gearbox, then you, that slipstream suddenly doesn't become so critical. And while we're on the subject, I've not read this anywhere. This is one from, from, from Hewan here, which will go down like a, a lead brick, I'm fairly sure. But I think from a penalty point of view, I think that instead of penalising people from pit lane and 
long lap loops and all the rest of it, I think you need to penalise them through their ECU. Every time that they have a transgression, not 500 revs off them. Take 500 revs away from them next time out. You know, you can do that. I'm, I'm fairly sure electronically you can do it during the weekend. You know, this is a dial it in type situation. I'm sure that there is a situation there where you can you can put an electronic penalty on these guys. So their bikes <laughs> suddenly you've lost revs, you know, throughout the entire race. Hello, goodbye race. You're done. Doesn't matter if you start from pit lane or anything else like that. You're not going to be able to use the performance. There has got to be some other way. And I feel through technology it can be done rather than I feel like we're 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 living in a digital era, but we're we're looking at analog bloody um you know cures for the problem i think that we need to look at it in a more digital kind of a manner a more now kind of a manner and i'm i'm convinced that electronically i, I love jürgen van der goldberg's thing i think that that needs testing that definitely you can it's a very cheap fix you can say you've got to use this ratio if you're using that ratio in fourth gear then the only ratios you're allowed to use above that are x and x x and y if you like and um i think that will uh pretty much cure it but if we test if they do a test like that running bikes like that it'll be very interesting to see the difference how much difference that makes but like romano fanati somewhat eloquently and uh, wonderfully poetically said that a slipstream is like oxygen to a moto 3 rider and we need to take the oxygen away <laughs> sometimes particularly from romano fanati who was exceptional again this weekend riding around the outside of people i thought he was brilliant Anyway, that's he, another, he another rant from Hewan. Hewan. No, a Hewan exclusive. I like it. We should have one every week. I think we'll clip that <laughs> up and get it out. Um, right, I, we've got some discussions in, but I want to touch on Moto Two and Moto Three before we come back to them. But at the end of all that, that the second race in Austria, uh, we could look back on that and uh, I think it was was one of the ones that perhaps changed things quite dramatically in the championship because Courtois uh, is still in the lead, has a forty-seven point advantage over Bagnaia now. Uh, in second with 134 points, and Joan Mir is called to out to third ahead of Zarco. So uh, Zarco, the big loser from this weekend so far. Uh, let's talk Moto2. It was Sam Lowe's on pole. There was uh, smiles all around for that. Uh, but in the end, he couldn't hang on to it uh, and kind of expected that really with his tyre choice perhaps, but uh, still managed to, to come home uh, with a top five position. It was Ralph Fernandez who got his uh, fourth win of the season ahead of Ayagura, his first ever podium. Augusto Fernandez rounded out the podium. Uh, Keith, what did you make of the Moto2 action? Because, you know, Remy Gardner didn't really feature with pace that, that much this weekend, it looked like as well, down in seventh in the end. I always think of the Red Bull ring like Snetterton, which might right. sound good. weird to a lot of people, but it's a very, very simple racetrack. Ten corners, nothing much to it, like the old Snetterton used to be before bloody Johnny Palmer got hold of it and put a few more squiggly bits in it, um, but and then, then named it after himself. Um, but the, the Snetterton was a very simple racetrack that was very difficult to get right. And I think that you have the same problem at the Red Bull ring to a great extent. And I think Remy... Remy did the right thing in the circumstances. I mean, he didn't have a brilliant weekend last weekend. He found himself sort of, you know, out of sorts, and he couldn't make it quite work this time. Same problem for Sam. Sam's never really got on that well with the Red Bull Ring. It's not one of his favourite racetracks. So I think a fourth place equaling his, I think that's his, equals his best of the year anyway, fourth place. So um, I, think, I think he must be pretty happy with that. And pole position, that one lap pace, but he wasn't happy with the softer tyre. He wanted to run the harder tyre, the feel in it. And half the time with, with, a, with a race bike, it's, it's about feel. You run what you, you think you're going to go best at. It might not be the best tyre 
perhaps performance wise, but it, it's what makes you run your best pace. And he chose that. It was a good finish at the end of the day on a racetrack that you, he wasn't expecting that much out of it when he came into it. So I think he will have gone home a, a happy man. Um, Rail Fernandez, brilliant, of course. But uh, I mean, the standout moment for me was with Simon Crafar in Park Ferme afterwards when he basically wanted to have a go back at all the trolls. I just love that. When a rider turned around and said, you know, this one's for you, you know, like all the haters. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. I mean, that is the way to, to treat, you know, armchair trolls that are having a go at somebody that's putting their life and their effort on the line and trying to move their way through. I can't wait till he goes to MotoGP. Um, it, it's interesting that he, he's still not really, not really the happiest of men considering he's going to MotoGP. <laughs> but anyway, that's, I, I still think he's going to be good when he gets there, once he, he, he bites the bullet and gets on with it. But um, it's an odd thing, isn't it? I, I can't really work that out, how... You know, KTM are almost forcing him into that position when he clearly doesn't really want to go there. I've never, I've never known anything like that. I mean, everybody wants to go to MotoGP. You know, even if, even if in your heart you're not sure whether you're going to be able to achieve what you're going to be able to achieve. And again, speaking from experience, I remember the first factory I rode for was Suzuki, and I remember I'd, 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 I'd done quite a lot of good works on a on a 350, and 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 that, which was Moto Two of my day, if you like, and 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 been there in on you know podium for, for for that class and so on but then suzuki i had a meeting with morris knight uh, peter agar morris knight ran the factory team out of beddington lane in crawley or is it croydon can't remember anyway um and i remember sitting down in this at this desk with these two very high up men very very influential men in our sport you know heron suzuki was a big deal barry sheen had been through there steve Parrish had been through there you know randy mamola you know Crosby have been through there. Have we lost? Have we lost Harry? <laughs> oh, you're back. So all these guys have been through Bennington Lane, and then I sat there on the other side of this desk, and this bloke, I said to him, "What, what are you expecting from me?" And he said, "Well, you're to win. This is a Grand Prix, 500s." And I remember thinking then, "Crikey, I didn't, I wasn't sure I wanted to go." So I've got some sympathy, in a long-winded kind of a way. We get there in the end with this conversation. I've got some sympathy for for Rail Fernandez in that. Maybe it's a it's a massive step to go into MotoGP, and it could cost him if he if he doesn't actually make it work straight away. He's he's got to really perform straight away, and I, I've got some sympathy for the bloke in that situation. But I've got the feeling also that he's going to be all right. He's going to be pretty good because he's a class act, Fernandez. But stick one up the trolls. I like that. <laughs> Always hate the haters. Uh, it was a fourth win for Ralph Fernandez. Uh, Pete Ayagura, first ever podium in second. Looking good, actually. And, and, and you know, I think quite rightly now really on the radar, perhaps, you know, for, for, for a MotoGP future, perhaps not next season, but, you know, certainly hotly tipped uh, to be a future Grand Prix rider at the highest level. Exactly, Harry. What's the name of the team he rides for? Honda Team Asia. You know, and, and he, people have been looking at Ayagura for a while and thinking, you know, if you're, if you're Nakagami... You know, you need to get some results and get a bit of a hurry up because this guy is, is maybe coming through if you're not delivering. And we're now seeing Ayagura start to deliver podiums. That's the first step, obviously. And, and yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's on that path, if you like, isn't he? That, you know, the team is run by Hiroshi Ayama, a former Honda MotoGP rider as well, X250CC world champion. So he's in the right place. He's, he's looking comfortable, obviously, fast enough to fight at the front now. So, yeah, definitely one to watch for the future. 
Yeah, and uh, and just briefly, we spoke about him earlier as well. Jake Dixon, perhaps making the step up uh, at Silverstone uh, for the Petronas SRT team. He came home to 11th uh, place, just ahead of Fabio Di Antonio. Decent ride from Dixon. Oh yeah, I just said it was a decent ride from Jake. I think that um, you know the team must be in a bit of turmoil this week. You know they're looking at their futures. There's a, there's a lot going on in that team that um, that you know we're not party to. Um, yeah, you mentioned the Asia Pacific region that you've got Ayama and the like that are there. You would have thought that you know I might have might have gone across to Patronus. That was a possibility there if, if if they needed to bring that sort of situation together and gel their their local region. You know, Jake Dixon, John McPhee still riding for Patronus won't be next year. So where's he going to go? You know, it's a, it's 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 a good tryout coming to the British Grand Prix. If you remember, he came into Moto Two. Um, few years back and had a ride around there and impressed everybody um that's where jake dixon really ended up in in grand prix purely and simply because of his ride at silverstone was so good and he worked well with his team so patronus are going to be looking at him at silverstone cal you know i'm told cal's going to be riding the the second factory yamaha jake's going to be on the patronus yamaha you know it's going to be a fantastic grand prix but a lot of pressure you know home grand prix you know there's no guarantees with a home grand prix you know riders You've seen big names that choke when they get to the to the pressure of their home Grand Prix. You've got twice the amount of commitments. The only good thing about the pandemic and Silverstone, of course, is that the paddocks are empty. Normally, you've got so much PR, you've got to do so many, you know, stuff that you've got to do for the fans, stuff you've got to do for your team, stuff you've got to do for your family and your friends that all want to be there. You've got to find double the passes to everywhere else. You know, it's a, it's a again, from experience, I know exactly how it is. You've got people that turn up in your garage that you've, hardly bloody seen before you don't know who the hell they are they're mates that you knew when you were at school you know they, so it's it's quite a quite a difficult thing at your home grand prix um and silverstone of course is a racetrack that you don't use very often either as a rider throughout the years you know it's a it's not a track that you can test on or anything along those lines much so it, it's it's a difficult thing but i think jake will rise to it cal definitely will um i love cal's attitude i mean i just love his attitude he's just smiling his way through this um you know, he was, he's a test rider and he had test rider, he had test rider mentality. He's come, come into racing at a time when it's got even tighter than when he was racing here just a short time ago. He's done hardly any riding since April. Um, and, and now he finds himself in, he's going to be on a full factory bike, which will be different to the one that he's ridden this last two weeks. Um, if he's on a full factory bike, big deal, big deal indeed. And probably the last time you'll ride at that level. You know, because he, you know, he's not coming back. He's, he's there to fill the gap, and that's it. So it's a, a swan song for him at the British Grand Prix, and that's, you know, knowing Cal is a lot of pride. You know, he will give it his all because Cal gives it his all. He won't leave anything on the table. It's just a question of whether that position he's in in life at the moment is good enough to give us a top ten. And if he gets a top ten at Silverstone, it's impressive. You know, it's so tight. I mean, people were expecting more from him. I think with what he's done, you know, these, these two weeks, but stepping up, stepping into a MotoGP race where this lot have all honed their skills over the previous rounds and, and on a, on a, you know, okay. It was a, an A bike, um, but it wasn't the full factory job. You know, he's there as a test rider. It's a big deal, but Silverstone will still be good to see Jake and him out. It's a reminder, isn't it? How quick things can change in MotoGP. You come in, you beat you in a one-off and then boom, suddenly, 
You're in the main team at the British Grand Prix. Um, but uh, at the end of all of the Moto2 action, despite not getting on to the podium, Remy Gardner still holds a 19-point lead now in the championship from Ralph Fernandez and Marco Bezecchi in third with 159 points. So... Uh, another perhaps race where things are starting to turn and twist in the tail of Moto2. Let's go down to Moto3 now. Uh, it was Sergio Garcia who took the win ahead of Dennis Onku and Dennis Foggia. Uh, I, well, it was actually, I think they said this on the coverage as well, a crazy race, but no one did anything too stupid. We had a great six battle at the front as well. It was quite, you know, breathless. It was redemption as well for Garcia. He got his third uh, third race win of the year. Um, and Acosta once again showing his mettle as well, but didn't quite get into the podium positions this time. Still holds the championship lead. But Moto3 actually coming through to provide that high octane action, but without the incidents that we've seen in previous races. Well, they got all the incidents out of the way, didn't they, in free practice and qualifying at the end of the day. So <laughs> so we got to the race and uh, they were a bit cleaner with it. But, I mean, Garcia out, out Acosta to Costa, didn't he, this week? I mean, last week, Acosta had the better of Garcia. Garcia threw it away from second place, got back on it and still finished second. Um, so he did a brilliant job last week, but he weren't having any of it on the gas gas this year, was it, uh, this week. He really, really rode a very, very smart race. Um, I love the Moto3 race this week. I thought it was really, really entertaining again. I mean, from a different... Moto3 is just one of those those races. I mean, Foggia on the Honda. The Leopard Honda is normally the bike to beat, but for some strange reason, at uh, the KTM track, if you like, the Gas Gas, the Husqvarna, the KTM, they're all a derivative of KTM, all looked like they'd got just that little bit extra punch, didn't they, here? Which um, is amazing, really. Uh, Foggia did a great job to finish up in third place but at the end of the day I still think Garcia the right man won given what he tried to do last week and then uh, this week he got it all worked out he was having none of it he was getting 25 points yeah and it's uh, Acosta isn't it Pete now with a 41 point lead that's right so he's still got more than a healthy lead if you like but you know Garcia is building confidence you know winning races he's showing that he can go toe-to-toe with Acosta I mean that'll be a big boost to him as Keith said it didn't work out from the week week before but he's more than made amends for it now so it, it could be interesting there's like, potentially quite a lot of races left and uh, if he can keep this momentum going we'll see felt a bit for Dennis Onchu I thought he was going to win his first Grand Prix. His brother Chan won, won one, obviously, ages ago in Valencia, the first one he won when it was a bit damp and the like. But, but uh, Dennis, he's sort of grown 18 inches in the last year. Eight- Hello, Harry. You just want to show off your flat, don't you? <laughs> you know what? We'll, we'll power on. <laughs> Pretend like it didn't happen. <laughs> so Dennis on Dennis Onchu, he's grown 18 inches in stature, and all of a sudden now he's he's racing like he's grown 18 inches in stature as well. I mean, it, it, I thought he was gonna, I thought he might take his first win actually, um, but it was only Garcia who just had the track craft to sort it out really and take the win. But uh, Onchu's, he's on it now. I wonder whether this is the springboard, if, if this is the step where we suddenly see Dennis Onchu at the front more often. <laughs> And of course, he had some some uh, some big Turkish backers with him, didn't he? Just to uh, to help support him. You know, maybe that was that little boost of confidence he needed, having Safoglu and, and Toprak there in the pit garage with him. Certainly would have done any harm, would it? Um, interesting, of course, this whole uh, Petronas situation. Maybe we, it's now a bit more clear as to why Toprak didn't want to sign. You know, if if, if it is as it looks like, B spec bikes, no title sponsor, all these changes. Suddenly, it makes a bit more 
a bit more sense. Maybe that's what, a little... When you hear from top rank Razgarioglu in pit lane, it's such a shame that he's not in MotoGP. I mean, he re- he's got a great personality. He represents part of the world that's underrepresented in some respects, which is a, a nice box to tick in this day and age where we d- we're into box ticking, of course. Um, Keenan Sofuoglu is team manager, the, the, what was he, five times, six times a, a super sport world champion. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a clever fella anyway. He's got it pretty much covered. Um, but I'd love to see Top Rack on a proper bike in the MotoGP paddock. He's got the personality. He's got that on-track personality as well, not just off-track stuff as well. He's fast. I don't know. Um, when will he come, I suppose? I mean, the thing is, you can break contracts. You can move contracts around. You know, things happen, don't they? Dorna own the rights to World Superbikes the same as they do to MotoGP, so really there's no issues there for, for sort of a little bit of muscle being exerted by Dorna to, to make things work. All we need is Istanbul Park back on the calendar as well for that <laughs> wonderful up and over the hill right hander, that lovely tire shredding right hander. Magic. We'd be back on it again then. Uh, and one rider that, that might be on it, Keith, what do you think about Darren Binder going from Moto 3 to Moto GP? It sounds like he's got a decent chance getting that ride. Oh, do you know what? My heart wouldn't be able to stand it. <laughs> Top rack Razgadi Oglu and Darren Binder in the braking area in MotoGP. Now, that would be <laughs> spectacular. Those two. They don't call him Stop Rack for no reason. Um, the guy's brilliant on the brakes, and so is Darren Binder. I mean, Binder, uh, did he get a penalty today? Did he get a penalty today? I can't remember now. There, there, was, there was something that everyone was shouting. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, I, think, I, I think Hodgie was quite, quite aggressive over... He passed Sasaki, didn't he? And Sasaki came down. That was what happened. I know Hodgie on the BT feed um, was quite critical, but I, I disagreed with Neil. I wish I was alongside him for arguing with him because I quite like an argument, and that was one I would have had. Um, it, I mean, yeah, it was a tough move. There's no doubt about it, but I think the stewards were right not to penalise Darren Binder in that situation. Um, Neil obviously thought otherwise, and like I said, we would have had a great argument over it and agreed in the end, I'm sure, because he's slightly bigger than me. Um, but the but the point being is is that again it was another anomaly. The stewards again were, were at odds. It, I don't know how we get over this stewards penalty type situation because you're looking at these things and they still seem inconsistent. We want to see racing. We want to see rubbing. You know you've got to have rubbing is you've got to have this situation where people are sticking an elbow in each other. You know there was a couple of occasions today where you saw elbows being shoved in someone else's fairing quite right too it's to keep the other rider off you don't want your levers interfered with by someone making a pass you know because they can just take the thing out from underneath you so elbows and a bit of rubbing and sticking your knee in someone is absolutely fine and legitimate to stay safe it's even a safety measure you could argue Um, but there are other instances where people get penalized you think hang on a second really and then mark marquez didn't get penalized you know for for some things that some other riders were penalized for when he was knocking elaish about I don't know. There is just that inconsistency. Maybe it's the stewards are so under pressure and have so much work to do in real time that they can't actually keep up with it. Maybe there's a situation where they need more stewards. You know, Freddie Spencer, he's the only one out of them that has has ridden a motorbike at a high level. And that high level was some time ago. You know, know, I'm, I'm not sure I could make the call, even though I have been a rider and still ride motorbikes, to the level that it needs to be, the decision that needs to be made needs to be someone today. Sylvain Gintoli has turned into a brilliant broadcaster. 
and he's still bloody fast on a motorbike. Now, there is a man whose opinion I would trust straight away because he's riding the same type of motorbikes with seamless gearboxes, with with uh, carbon brakes, with the latest tires. He's, he's doing testing on, on the very latest kit with the latest innovations. He understands how a motorbike you know, is moved around in the air, how it, how it responds to other people being around it. He's got a greater understanding of what's going on. And they're the kind of people that need to make these decisions. Maybe not a multiple world champion like Freddie Spencer from the 80s. You know, as brilliant as Freddie Spencer is as a man now and was as a rider then, maybe Freddie just can't quite get to the point where you need to sometimes. I don't know. I'm, I'm speaking really as a, I'm asking a question rather than making a statement. Maybe this is something for crash viewers as well to, to have an opinion on. Anybody can have an opinion on it. But it, we just seem to be a little bit shy of where we need to be in the, in the stewards' perspective. We just need a little bit more from them in consistent terms um, rather than have this slight bitching and whinging afterwards when, when you know, a decision's been made. Um, Aleish is pretty good at that kind of thing. He likes to stick his oar in when, um, when things haven't quite been the right way. And I admire him for being outspoken in that way. And maybe Aleish Espargro will be a steward in the future. Not too distant, perhaps. Who knows? What do you think, everybody? Just on the penalties, interesting that 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 track limits violation for Binder, which seemed extremely harsh, that was actually reversed about an hour after the race. What so they gave really? they gave the three because it didn't change positions, did no, it? It just but he got the three seconds back because it seemed. I mean, how do you say someone you know you know didn't is taking an advantage when the guy's on slick tires in the rain? Because it's not about an advantage. I mean, not not as, as my understanding goes. I mean, last lap advantage is something. But he was at the end of his... He'd already had a track limits warning. And he was at the end of his track limits anyway. So the fact that they gave it and then take it away, is it brings us into disrepute. It's, it's inconsistent. It's not quite a viable decision, it would seem, you know. If it wasn't going to make any, you know, if, if in those circumstances it was going to make no difference, why give it in the first place and then take it away? Could have left him where he was anyway and then decided a little later in the day, well, we'll give it to him anyway just because we need to show consistency. But giving it to him and it makes no difference to the race anyway and then taking it away, even though it made no difference, just makes us all look silly. I don't, I don't understand why you would do that. It's, like, it's kind of like we haven't got a big enough office in that department. We need a bigger office with, with more people in it that are able to make slightly more um, coherent decisions. Freddie, come on, crash.net. Do you know what? There was some, some, something I watched today. Again, I, I recorded BSB, British Superbikes from Donington Park today, and Jamie Whittam, bless him and love him, interviewed Stuart Higgs, race director, series director for BSB. Now, Stuart... Big fish, small pond, you might say. Very good at making decisions, really coherent decisions. And anybody that didn't see the interview with Jamie and, and Stuart should, because the way he, how eloquently he put it in such a concise manner, the way that he had controlled the bashing and crashing that we'd had in, in the second race today, uh, round two, sorry, the first one was on Saturday for BSB, uh, round two of the weekend, there was, you know, people were just taking liberties, disrespectful moves, you know, harsh moves. And the way that Stuart Higgs explained it was, this is not Sepang, is what he said. In other words, the wide open spaces of a safe racetrack. If you're taking liberties on tracks that aren't quite 
that don't quite have the safety parameters that somewhere like Sepang has, then you are disrespecting people's safety, perhaps to a certain extent, on a track like Cadwell Park or a track like Brands Hatch where the runoffs aren't quite as big. You need to be a fraction more careful. And I thought the way that Higgs handled it was very, very good. And he's a dictatorship, Stuart Higgs. He makes the decision. It's almost like we need that in MotoGP. Maybe the committee thing that I've been talking about, have a few more people watching the monitors and stuff like that. Maybe we don't need that. Maybe we need a dictator in there that says, this is how it's going to be so that we get consistent decisions all the way through. I don't know. Again, I throw it open to anybody who wants to have an opinion on this because that's what we're all about here at Crash. You know, get stuck in. Let us know what you think. I mean, it's, I think BSB is run very well rules-wise, and I think Iggsy does a, does a great job, and uh, he can buy me a pint now when he hears this. <laughs> I think uh, it's, uh, it is that situation. You know, how many cooks in the kitchen do you need for, for these kind of decisions to be made? But uh, do let us know what you think in the, in the comments below or CrashNet on, uh, on social media. Just search CrashNet MotoGP now. Uh, you know we've been going on too long when my home studio starts to uh, dismantle itself. Um, so we're going to. I'm going. I've got a couple of listener questions which we'll just just about have time to squeeze in for you. Um, so let's start with Craig Oat, uh, who is. Uh, we've reached the sunny shores of South Africa because he's from South Africa. He's ecstatic about Brad Binder's second win in MotoGP. He asks, "Can KTM pose a title challenge in 2022 if they sort out their qualities?" Yes. Absolutely no doubt in my mind, and that's what they're in it for. KTM, you know, they closed down their Moto2 program, you know, started to concentrate on what they started to concentrate on. Hired Danny Pedrosa, who's done a great job as well. KTM are serious about winning a title. They're not in this just to just to ride round and round and have the occasional win. And Binder is a man that can do it as well. Um, I like the South African attitude, actually. It's one of them situations where Australian South Africans, I always think they're, they're quite tough. They're a long way from home. They work bloody hard, you know, da di da di da Funding has never been the easiest thing either for, for both those guys from a long way offshore. So coming over here into Europe, living here and, and doing what they've got to do, it's a big deal. You know, there's a lot at stake. And Brad Binder is one of them. Well, the Brinder brothers, actually, both of them, in totally different characters in the way they go about their job, but tough characters. Um, and BB don't stand for Brad Bender. It's big balls, according to David A. Tadotti. <laughs> Tadotti said it live on air, which I was quite amused at. Um, and it is one of those situations where Brad is the kind of guy that can get the job done. Um, you know, when you're trying, again, we've been in this, you know, tech freeze, but wait till we're out of it. There's going to be a lot happens in 2022. And I think KTM are going to be there or thereabouts, my personal opinion. And it's a good lineup, isn't it, Pete, with Oliveira and, and Binder? Exactly, yeah. I mean, if, if if Brad could qualify better, I mean, the races he's been doing, he's always charging through the field, but he makes life so hard for himself by starting so far back that really, if they can just, you know, if they could just address that, he could almost have been a title contender this year. I mean, Oliveira, before these two nightmare Austrian rounds, he was he was closing in, wasn't he? He'd had a good run of podiums. He'd had the race win. But now he's had he's lost fifty points in in the space of two races, and that's dropped him right back. But you know, it, it, everything is it, they're, they're so close to having the title challenge. I mean, it, it certainly it's looking unlikely looking at the point situation now. But it could it could have happened this year. But it's some some unexpected issues have maybe emerged. You know, I don't think people expected 
Binder to be facing all these qualifying issues. And, and there, there was the tyre allocation at the start of the year, the, the change there and how that's affected them. And so there's just been a few things that, that they weren't expecting. As Keith says, the tech freeze is on. So then solving problems is, is more difficult. You can't always go the direct route. You have to go, you know, sort of around the problem to address it in, in a way that's possible rather than the direct quickest way. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. They've got, and they've got a great young lineup across all four bikes, haven't they? I mean, the Texois bikes, Remy and, uh, and Raul Fernandez on that. They've got long-term deals, it looks like, with all their riders. So they've got a lot of stability as well. So it, everything's there for them to, to have a title challenge. And they will expect it. We were talking about pressure earlier. I'm sure that, uh, you know, KTM, Red Bull, that they'll be, you know, everything's here, guys. Let's, you know, now's the time, you know. Just one final thing. I mean, um, Miguel and Brad—they're not—they're not young guys now, you know. So they'll be saying, "Look, now's the time. You know, you guys can do this. You're, you're every bit as good as these other riders. You've got the equipment." And I think they—they'll they, be expecting a title challenge next year. I think so. Yeah. Well, Craig, I hope that's uh, got you uh, fired up as well uh, for the South African fl uh, flags, especially to be waving. I'm sure. Uh, uh, now, Zly has asked Jorge Martin and Jack Miller team swap before the 2022 season. The Spaniard looks like the new alien. Only Peco on the Ducati camp uh, has shown similar raw pace and racecraft. Well, we'll see about that. Um, I think that, um, you know, don't write off Jack Miller just yet would be my, uh, my comment with that. But, I mean, uh, Ducati, uh, you know, they've got a... An incredible situation coming next year with eight bikes on the grid. You know, the, the, the data that they're going to be sucking up and the like next year as well. I think, um, don't panic, Mr. Mannering. I think we've got a great year coming uh, at Ducati as well. And Bagnaia, I mean, as you know, from my predictions early on in the year, when we were at Aragon, you know, Bagnaia is a guy I rate very, very highly indeed. And he's, he's you know, he's moments away from, from being the superstar that I think he is. Um, you know, and, and you're right. Jorge Martin, I remember walking around a freezing cold Hareth, watching him on a Moto2 bike. The first time I saw him on one, I think it was a Moto2 bike. But anyway, I remember watching and thinking, who the hell is that? And he looked like the business back then. Me and Jules, we were in a cafe eating, of course. I was with Jules. And, um, and we watched uh, Jorge Martin. And then, you know, later that afternoon, he was out running around, you know, at training. And I remember thinking, God, he looks like a hard little sod. And he is. And he's fast. <laughs> and he puts the effort in. I mean, he's... Yeah, he could be an alien. We'll wait and see. I mean, he looks like he's in the he's, he's he's on the ascendancy at the moment. But there's more to an alien than just being able to win the occasional race. I mean, aliens are a special breed. You know, you, you to join that particular club, you're going to have to be exceptional and do something that no one has ever seen before. Aliens do stuff that we've not yet, you know, viewed. You, know, you go back to again, Freddie Spencer. He was an alien. He was the first alien. Then you're talking about Casey Stoner, Jorge Lorenzo. Um, you know, Mark Marquez, obviously, you know, there are, there are a few, Danny Pedrosa, you know, if you see the way Danny Pedrosa, there are some very, very special motorbike race, races that, um, that alien status is not by right. You've got to do a bit more yet. Jorge might be able to though. Jorge Martin might be able to. Well, he's certainly showing uh, how, what, how fast he can go is these lies actually done a, a quick follow-up uh, for us as well. And actually Pete, just off of your KTM, uh, uh, talk. He's asked, has KTM rushed to kick Ike Lequona and Petrucci out and throw Fernandez into Tech 3 if he doesn't want to even be there? 
Why have they done it? Sorry. Well, he's asked, have they rushed? You know, have they have they gone too soon to kick Laquona and, and or Petrucci? We, all, we always knew that one of them had to go. But, you know, if Fernandez doesn't want to go, it comes back to the mental thing, doesn't it? Because you could perform top of your game if you, if you don't actually want to be there and you think you're thinking about all these other things that might go wrong. As we were saying earlier, I, I can't remember a situation where a rider has got a MotoGP ride and then kind of been, oh, mm, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's it's not it's not clear to us exactly what the reservation Fernandez has is. You know, is it that he wants to stay in Moto2 for another year? I mean, but but look, he's fighting for the title this year. He's won what, four races now. It, it's the fight is on. Is he worried that you know, look, looking at? Laquona and Petrucci now that that bike is is obviously it's not front runner or you know where 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 is where is it is it how much is it down to the riders and how much is it down to the bike is he worried that actually I'm not going to be able to perform and show my best on this bike exactly so that's the other thing isn't it if it's not that he needs more experience which I I, I think is decreasing by the race I mean how can you say oh no no I need another year here I mean you know so then it has to be that he's unsure about about the team or the bike um also, if he did stay another year in Moto2, a lot of contracts, a lot more contracts come up for grabs at the end of next season. So there would be a lot more options available. Now, you know, is, is that also a factor? But as I say, it's just a, a strange one. Um, I mean, look, KTM clearly, they don't want to lose him. They, they recognize that other people want him, have been throwing big, big long-term deals at him, Aprilia and Yamaha. They've got this option on him, but it seems like if they didn't put him into MotoGP, that they would lose that option in some way. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what's in the contract, but so that that's where it seems to come from. So it's actually, you've got this situation where the manufacturer is saying, you know, this is where we want you to be. And he's kind of going along with it. Um, yeah, I mean, we talk about Jorge Martin, of course, KTM lost Jorge Martin almost on a technicality that, that the COVID pandemic meant that the option they had on him sort of it couldn't be met because there was no races at the start of last year. So that then opened the door for Ducati to come in and sort of sweep him away. So, you know, I think they were worried about losing Ralph Fernandez. There was a lot of, lot of attention, a lot of pressure from the other manufacturers trying to get hold of him. And so this was their way of saying, no, he's staying with us. But it, it seems like the only way of guaranteeing he stayed with them was with Tectoire. And to answer the question, that unfortunately means that, that the other two guys have had to go. Now, there's some rumors that Lacona might be you know, a contender for one of these, I don't know what we call it now, not Patronus, but Sepang at the moment seats, should we say, that, that you know, that could be, I mean, that'd be a great opportunity for him, that maybe Raslan and the guys there are looking at what he's done on the KTM. He hasn't had great results, but maybe they're thinking, look, the Yamaha is a lot easier bike to ride. He's got two years of experience. He's still very young. He's, he's I think he's two years younger than Darren Binder. You know, he's got less experience than Darren Binder in terms of the number of years in Grand Prix. So that would be if it if it is a, a Darren Binder Lacona lineup, which is sort of the latest in a very long line of rumors. Um, you know, that would be a, an interesting lineup. And you know, so Lacona is maybe not over for him yet. Petrucci, it, it does look like he doesn't have any options to remain in MotoGP. We had the, the Dakar rumor, uh, Superbike. You know, also is a possibility. It will depend on what he wants to do, really, whether he wants to continue, you know, doing road racing or do something completely different. But, um, but yeah, Ralph, Ralph Fernandez. I mean, obviously a huge talent. Let's hope that it that all of this talk and pressure doesn't sort of ruin things for him. And we saw him talking about the haters uh, i mean it, it's great that he does that but part of me also thinks you know don't worry about that don't get distracted that means that he's sat there reading these things yeah you're absolutely right pete that's a very very good point that's the side of things if you're going to have your head turned by people on twitter then you're screwed 
you know it's it's something that's that that, that is all part of the, the the job nowadays that is the the media circus that we're all living within and it's a it's a you know if, if you're affected by it then just ignore it switch it off and uh, i think that the fact that he was so incredibly vociferous about haters and um, that slightly surprised me i've got to say i enjoyed it in pit lane it's always nice to see someone get one in the eye um, because this this unknown enemy that's out there that's, that's always criticizing and having a go at riders and the like um it, it kind of just gets annoying but that's all it should be is just annoying it shouldn't be something you take seriously um so you're right that's um it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out at the end of the day 2022 gonna be great 2022 well we're not even uh well we don't know if we're halfway through the season yet or not we'll uh, we'll find out one more then for you because i feel bad if i don't answer jeremy's question as well if i don't answer if you don't answer jeremy's question uh because we didn't answer any last time uh so jeremy has asked uh, on suzuki here we go uh, isn't suzuki's new start procedure in the practices a bit dangerous how long before we see one of them riding down the pit lane with the starter hanging out of the side of the bike and then flying off and hitting someone? That's from Jeremy. Jeremy, I can understand your point there, um, but these guys are pros and they know what they're doing. And, um, you know, the rider, I, I, I don't quite understand why they did it at the time. There's obviously something that's going on behind the, the, the boardings and stuff that they're, they're, they want to come out. They don't want to show when they're coming out and they want to start it right at the last minute. I mean, they Actually starting it, I don't understand why they don't just start it in the, in the garage and then pull the boards up to one side. Why you have to be running alongside it and fire it up? It seems seems an extreme manoeuvre, but they will have their reasoning behind it. There's no doubt about that. There'll be, there will be a reason behind it. Um, is it dangerous? No, nah, they're professionals. So I think I think they're not allowed to start the bikes in the garage. Oh, so that's yeah, uh, yeah it, the rules change. It's it's a fairly recent rule. They they used to, but I think it's you know for safety reasons, then the engine has to be started outside the garage. Obviously, when you're doing that, that gives the other teams chance to. Oh right, they're starting their engine. Get ready. We'll follow him out down pit lane, and so that's why they're 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 putting the screen there. You know. They're rushing out with the idea of getting down pit lane before the other guys can start their bikes and follow him. I think he had Mark Marquez following him quite a lot well, during qualifying. Now, if, yeah. if, if, if Pete, then you can be fairly sure that um, by the time we get to Silverstone, there will be a rule that says they can't do it if the bike's moving. <laughs> Almost for sure, because otherwise everybody will be doing it, and we'll have a, if, if if just Suzuki are doing it, then yeah, okay. For whatever reason they were doing it, I wasn't aware of that that they weren't allowed to start me in the garage anymore. But um, that, that's certainly, te- yeah, uh, I'm not 100, percent but I know uh, I've been at some tests and they haven't been allowed to do it. Yeah, you, you know, you've got fumes, you've got you know everything it else. Makes, it makes absolute sense, and so therefore the question is valid in that that if more than one team were doing it, then <laughs> it will be banned. They won't be able to start them unless they're on the stand um, waiting to go. Because because if everybody's doing it down pit lane, you, you're increasing the level of risk. And so, therefore, I can see a rule being uh, written for that fairly soon. I actually asked Juan Mir because I thought it must be a Suzuki thing, you know. And I said, "Oh, that was a that was quite a good idea by your teammate, you know. Who whose idea was that?" And he said, "Not mine." You know, and he, he didn't seem to know anything about it. So I think this has come from sort of Rins's crew that they they must have thought of it. And I, I do wonder if thinking of the safety angle that they they waited until qualifying one. You've only got half the grid, you know, not many bikes. Maybe that's why we didn't see it before then, because, you you know, FP3, you have a similar situation where you don't want people following you. You're trying to get in the top 10. So that, that might be Keith Naves mentioned that. That might be why we only saw it in qualifying one, because there was 
empty garages either side, wasn't there? But yeah, what's going to happen when it's a more cramped pit lane? You've got people running alongside. I mean, it worked. It was a clever idea. But if you get it wrong, you know, it could be dangerous. And if you get it wrong, you surely get a penalty because of that, because it will be dangerous. Yeah. Well, I think, chaps, we'll, uh, we'll have to call it a day there because uh, we've had so much to talk about and uh, hopefully we hopefully we haven't missed anything. I don't think we have. But thank you, as always, uh, for joining me, Keith and Pete. Uh, and thank you as well for listening. Thank you for getting your questions in as well. We will be back once again next week uh, for more MotoGP chat, this time previewing the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. So uh, if you're in the UK, it will be the last time you can uh, go and see Valentino Rossi track side so uh, whatever your nationality it will be a special moment as well because silverstone just is a special place on the calendar but we will dive uh, into all things british grand prix next time out any questions in the meantime send them in all the usual ways leave them in the comments section or tweet instagram facebook us just search crash moto gp leave a review as well wherever you get your podcasts and we shall see you right back here next week bye-bye Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.